grab up a Bible and turn to Joshua. This morning we are in Joshua chapter 9. Already there, moving our way through it. One of the really cool things that I get to do uh, as, as a pastor is I, I get to teach classes over at Western Seminary in Sacramento on occasion, which is super fun. I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm kind of a huge nerd, and I like school. I, I miss school. Uh, I capped out a few years ago when I, when I got my, my doctorate, and now they won't let me go back because I got all the degrees. Uh, but, but I love it. And I, so still getting to teach is great because with teaching, I have to know everything. It's harder. It's, it's way, you have to dive in way more. And so the, the class that I get to teach in July is this class on ministerial ethics. It's a class that I've, I've never really uh, taught before. Uh, and, and so I've been reading every book I can find on different aspects of, of ethics. Uh, and, uh, really, the whole point of all of these books, it, it, to simplify it, it's it, we're trying to figure out the answers to the question, what is the right thing to do, and what is the wise thing to do? That, that's really what ethics is, is all about. And uh, it's been an absolutely amazing, fascinating study really cool. And it's cool to see these different systems of ethics and how they all relate with each other and how they all relate to us as human beings and to us as Christians and and uh, people who aren't Christians. And so I'm going to give you a quick uh, overview of the different ethical systems. This this next part here is free seminary level education. So you're welcome, right? Yeah, write this stuff down. You could share it with your friends at dinner and they'll be like, wow. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, big $3 words uh, that are really cool, but there's three main systems of ethics. There's deontological ethics, teleological ethics, and then ethical relativism. Deontological ethics, uh, deonka is the Greek word for duty. So it's an ethic of duty. And it's simply the idea that there is a standard of right and wrong that we have a duty to keep. And that standard of right and wrong comes from outside of ourselves, from from somewhere else. There are laws, there's rules that have been established that we have a duty to follow. As, as Christians, we understand that the source of our ethics is, anybody know? God, right? Yes, that's it, right. It comes from Him. It's His law, and it's and it's His will, and it's His word. God makes the rules, and we have a duty to follow them, right? That, does that make sense? Not that hard. Pretty simple so far. The next one is teleological ethics, and and that comes from the Greek word telos, which means end. And so this is an ethical system that essentially holds that the ends justify the means. If the the end result is something good, either something good for me personally or something good for us as humanity or some kind of good thing, then whatever means you use to get there is ethical. And then the third one is ethical relativism. Uh, and this, this is the idea that, uh, like the name suggests, ethics are kind of relative to the situation. Uh, this one believes that... Uh, 
uh, ethics are constructed by different cultures and different societies, and they might be different from one culture to another. Uh, it can also take on the form of situational ethics. The right thing to do kind of depends on the situation you find yourself in. And what's right for you might be right for you, but it might not be right for me. It just sort of it depends on, on where we're at. So it's this sort of postmodern idea that there's no absolute truth. There's no absolute standard of right and wrong that exists out there somewhere. It's just us trying to figure out what's best for us. Uh, those are, those are the big, fancy, like, philosophical words, but the concepts behind them are pretty basic and they've been around forever. They're not new. Uh, in Genesis chapter three, The serpent asks Eve this question, did God really say that you're not allowed to eat from any of the trees in the garden? And Eve said, no, here's the, here's the deal. He said, we could eat from any of them, just not this one. That's the standard. That's, that's the rule. And, and at that point, that was it. That was the, that was the one rule. That was the one point of ethics. Just don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was the duty that they had to keep. That was their deontological ethic. That's where they were. Satan's tactic, though, was to kind of cast doubt on that, to suggest that there were other ways of making decisions that might be even better. And it worked, right? In Genesis 3.6, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and ate it. Did, did you catch what happens there? There's this shift that takes place from a, from a deontological ethic of duty. Here's the standard to the other two, right? To, to an ethical relativism. Well, it's right for me. It looks good. It looks like it, it's going to taste good. And, and then, and then to, to like a teleological ethic. Ah, uh, the end result is it's going to make me wise. And that's a good thing. And things often deteriorate when we make that shift from God's way, God's standard to, to our own way, from, from His wisdom and His ethic to our wisdom and our ethics. Not, not just as individuals, but as churches, as, as nations, there's often a deterioration that takes place when we make that shift. There are churches that exist right now, denominations out there, that have decided that the Bible isn't a reliable standard. Instead, uh, they're going with this kind of nebulous idea of like just love and happiness, which again, it really isn't new. It's just another form of ethical relativism. And at one point, this nation was way more so than it is now, founded on the idea that there's a standard of right and wrong that comes from outside of ourselves. And, and so much of our, our laws, our, our ideals, our behaviors came from the idea that God has given us some moral directives. But more and more, that system of ethics is replaced with this more utilitarian one. Uh, the ends justify the means kinds of ethics. Or an ethic where we decide what's right. 
what's wrong. And the same exact thing happened in the Bible. I mean, we're in Joshua here where the people, they're, they're dialed into God. They're following him. They're obeying him. They're doing exactly what he's saying. God's winning the victories for him. It's awesome. He's building this cool nation. In the very next book of the Bible, Judges, it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We, we didn't invent ethical relativism. It's been around for a long time. Wisdom and ethics are gifts that God gives us. And our lives are immensely blessed and successful when we take full advantage of those gifts that He gives us. Here in the passage we're in, in Joshua chapter 9, we're reminded about the importance of wisdom and ethics. Both of which, again, are, are sourced in God. And here, there's an initial lack of wisdom on Joshua's part that could very easily have spun him out into making some uh, uh, ethically compromised decisions, but he doesn't. Let's, let's look. Look at uh, Joshua chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now, it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country and in the lowland and all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, uh, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the uh, Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite heard of it, heard of Israel beaten up on Jericho and Ai. When they heard about this, they gathered themselves together in one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended, worn-out and patched sandals on their feet, worn-out clothes on themselves. All the bread of their provision was dry and become crumbled. They went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country, a long way away. We're not from Canaan. We're like a long way away. Now therefore, make a covenant with us. Make a peace treaty with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you're living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. Joshua said to them, who are you? Where did you come from? They said to him, your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. We've heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions in your hand for the journey. And go to meet them and say to them, we're your servants. Now then, make a covenant with us. This, our bread was warm when we took it for our provision out of our houses on the day that we left to come to you. But now, behold, it's, it's dry and has become crumbled. These wineskins, which were filled, were new. And, and behold, they're torn. These are clothes and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. So they, they checked out their things and saw that they were old, but they didn't talk to God about it. Joshua made peace with them 
made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the covenant swore an oath to them. Now you got to admit, these guys are kind of brilliant, right? Like in a crafty sort of way. Uh, while all the other kings were saying, all right, let's all band together to try and fight Israel because they're just whooping up on us. We gotta, we gotta unite, make one big army. Maybe that way we'll get them. Uh, the Gibeonites say, that's not gonna work. Like they, they messed up Jericho. Like you see what they did there? And they weren't even trying. I think maybe their God is real. Like they've got the real deal on their side. We're gonna lose. We gotta try something else because fighting isn't gonna work. And so, so they come up with this brilliant plan. We're, we're just gonna trick them. Uh, th- these guys pretend that they'd come from a long way away outside of Canaan because God had told them, like, you got to wipe out everybody. You go, you go through Canaan and you take care of all of them. Th- that was their instruction. And so when they come, uh, Israel's skeptical at first, right? Like they question, how do we know for sure who you are? But they investigate, they look and yeah, they got worn out shoes and the bread's all moldy. It looks like they've been traveling for a long, long time. And so they, they go ahead and decide to make a peace treaty with them. Joshua promises to let them live. Oh no, that's not good. And the error is spelled out right there in verse 14. The men of Israel took some of their provisions, but didn't ask for the counsel of the Lord. They looked with their eyes at what they could see but they didn't ask for God's wisdom or guidance. Instead of leaning on the wisdom of God, a wisdom that was right there, totally available to them, could have, could have accessed it easily, they relied on their own wisdom. And he, here's the problem with relying on our own wisdom, and you already know this from experience. Uh, we don't really see that much. We don't know very much. We are very short-sighted. Part of the problem with our wisdom is that there's this whole other spiritual realm that we are just so blinded to. Paul tries to kind of peel things back for us a little bit in Ephesians 6. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We've read that verse a lot, but I don't think we understand it or, or believe it. We're horribly, horribly short-sighted. Our, our knowledge and our wisdom and our understanding, it only goes so far, and we are clouded by selfishness and sin. And there's a liar. There is this liar who keeps trying to trick us, who, who keeps uh, trying to get us uh, off track. He keeps trying to confuse us and he keeps using the same lies that he did with Eve. Is that, is that really the best system for deciding what's right and wrong? Cause you could just do what seems right to you. That would be all right. Or look at this good thing that might happen if you do things the wrong way. Like you're going to, it's just a shortcut, but it's ultimately going to be okay. He keeps telling us those same lies because they work. Ah, uh, they worked all the way back there on Eve and they, They keep working on us. We're naive. But we don't need to rely on our own wisdom. We need to inquire of God. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Don't, don't do it. 
Hebrews 4, 16 tells us this. Uh, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's a thing we can do. Like we can draw right there, right in to the throne of God and ask Him for help. And then in, in James chapter 1, verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, is that you? anybody lacking in wisdom other than me? Yeah, everybody, right. If you act, lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it'll be given to him. Oh, man, that's, that's like the best Bible verse ever, right? Let's just, that's one of those that needs to be on the fridge. That's one of those that should be tattooed somewhere. That's, that's one of those that we need to be reminded of over and over again. If we lack wisdom, yeah, if, we get to go to ask God. And when we do, when we go and say, God, I don't understand this. I'm not sure about this. I don't know what to do here. God's not like, well, you should know better. What's your problem? No, no. He gives wisdom generously, without reproach. Now how, man, how much better would our decision making be if we didn't rely on our own understanding, but instead we leaned on God? I don't know. I'll be honest. I find this whole Gibeonite debacle here in Joshua 9 kind of comforting. Like to me, it's a little bit reassuring because here's, here's Joshua. And again, Joshua was the guy that from his youth was the, was like the personal attendant of Moses. He got to hang out with Moses all through everything that God was doing. Uh, Joshua was with Moses when Moses went up to that mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and Joshua got to be a part of that. It says that, that Joshua was in the tent of meeting while Moses spoke to God like a friend speaks to a friend. Joshua got to see that. Joshua, just, just back in chapter 5, Joshua comes face to face with pre-incarnate Christ on the way to battle Jericho. Like Joshua has as much open access to God as anybody possibly could, right? And yet, and yet here he doesn't take two minutes to ask for God's input when these Gibeonites show up. How, how quickly we forget that we have this total and complete access to God and, and, and God's wisdom. We have every bit as much access to God and God's wisdom as Joshua did. Again, we're, we're told by God not to lean on our own understanding. We're welcomed in to the throne room of grace where we can receive help in our time of need. We're specifically told in God's word that when we lack wisdom, all we got to do is ask. We have that kind of access to the wisdom of God. Think about that for just a second. We have that kind of access to God and His wisdom. Total, complete unfettered access to the all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe. And yet still we try and figure stuff out on our own. Oh, how foolish is that? How How do we do that? How do we access God's wisdom? How do we tap into that? It's really not that complicated, right? I bet you can guess what point number one is pray. (laughs) That's it. All we need to do is pray and ask. Simply inquire of the Lord. It's all Joshua needed to do. 
And how does God impart His wisdom on us when we pray? How does that part work? What does is, what is that look like? I think that can look like a million different things. I think God's way of imparting wisdom to us can take the shape of all kinds of, of different things in, in our lives. And sometimes maybe it's just God through His Holy Spirit helping us to take a little bit of time to think through a situation. Have you ever had, have you ever had this experience where you're, where you're praying and you're asking God, uh, for help with something and then your mind starts to think m- more about the situation and the subject, and, and you're like, oh, I'm sorry, God, I'm supposed to be praying. Uh, well, I don't know, maybe God is trying to help you think, like trying to help you re- reason through it or process through it. And sometimes you're just thinking about sandwiches and you need to... But other times, I think God tries to help us mentally process things. Sometimes God imparts His wisdom just through closed doors. Sometimes he imparts his wisdom through other people that come and say, whoa, what are you doing? Stop it. And sometimes it's just simply through this process of prayer that we slow down enough to, to hear the voice of God and that, that still small Holy Spirit whispering to us. In Joshua 9.16, it says that three days later, they discovered who the Gibeonites really were. If they just would have taken a little bit of time, just through the the course of time, they they would have figured out the truth. Often, very often, we make unwise decisions when we act too quickly and when we fail to pray. Right? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Wisdom comes through prayer. Wisdom also comes through asking the advice of godly people. In Proverbs 12.15, it says, The way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 19.20 says, Listen to advice and accept instruction, and in the end, you will be wise. Again, God's Word is trying to point us in the right direction. There's, there's a lot of voices that we're going to hear out there in the world that are going to tell us all kinds of unwise things. Things that sound good, though. Things that seem logical and, and reasonable. You know, f- follow your heart. Oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> do whatever makes you happy. Everyone should just do what is right in their own eyes. Oh, that's from the Bible. Yeah. Foolish advice, it sounds so good to our itchy ears. But you go find somebody in your life that you can go to and ask for advice when you need wisdom. Go find somebody who, when you ask them for advice, they're going to start off by saying, well, in the Bible it says, go find that guy. Go find somebody that you know has an incredible prayer life and, and ask their wisdom and advice on things. That that's what we need. We all need an advisor who isn't doling out earthly wisdom. There's plenty of that. We need somebody who's given out godly advice. And finally, to gain wisdom, we need to go to the Word of God. It's given to us for the purpose of making us wise. Right? I don't know if I need to say a whole lot more on that one. I feel pretty safe in saying that if you are not 
praying on a regular basis, and you're not regularly seeking godly advice, and you're not spending regular time in God's Word, then you're a fool. Because it means that you're relying on your own wisdom. Okay, so, so here in our story, Joshua and Israel, they make this super bonehead move, right? They make a peace treaty with people that God had already told them they were supposed to kill. Awkward, right? Now what do we do? Uh, do we, do we honor the peace treaty that we made with them? Or do we obey what God has told us to do in wiping them all out? This is what's known in the textbooks as an ethical dilemma. What's the right thing to do? Which way do we go? It says, it says that the sons of Israel pursued them. When they found out, they chased them down right to their doorstep, parked right at their front door, and I'm sure that they were furious. We've been tricked, been fooled, so mad. What are they going to do? Look, look at Joshua 9.18. Uh, then the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live so that wrath will not be upon us for the oath which was sworn to them. The leader said to them, uh, let them live. So they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken to them. Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us? Saying, we are very far from you when you're living within our land. Now, therefore, you are cursed. You shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore, we feared greatly for our lives because of you and have done this thing. Now behold, we are in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do with us. Oh, interesting. So their decision here was to not break the oath that they'd made with them. But Joshua does kind of pronounce a little curse on them and make them slaves forever. <laughs> How do they come to that conclusion? How do they decide that letting them live was the right thing to do? It certainly wasn't by a unanimous vote, right? It wasn't a democracy, because what did the people want to do? They wanted to kill them. <laughs> they were mad that the leaders told them to stop. They wanted to just follow through with it. And they maybe even were, I don't know, kind of justified in their position. I'm sure there were some that were arguing, hey, listen, this is what God told us to do. He specifically told us to kill them, so we got to go kill them. And, and they, and they tricked us. They lied. That should nullify the whole covenant right there. But Joshua and the other leaders, they say, no, they restrain them. We swore an oath. We swore an oath to God that we wouldn't kill them. 
So, so again, how did they decide that that was the right thing to do? I mean, did God tell them that's what they had to do? I, I mean, in the text, it doesn't say God said, here, make this choice and not that choice. Um, did they pray about it? Probably, but it doesn't say so in the text. I hope they did at this point. How did Joshua know what the right thing to do was? After reading all of these different books on ethics, I find this case study in the Bible super fascinating. Like this is going to be the first thing we talk about on the first day of class. Uh, because I, th- I think that, that this situation teaches us a lot about how to make ethical decisions. Ultimately, Joshua appeals to a deontological ethic, right? A, an ethic of duty, something that's outside of himself. But in this case, it's not like it was clearly spelled out, chapter and verse, here's what you're supposed to do. He had to rely on his knowledge of God and God's word and God's character. Because the ultimate source of right and wrong is God. Not not just because God is the most powerful and so anything he says goes, but because God is all-wise and just, and loving, and gracious, and holy. And God alone is holy and righteous. If we want to be people of justice and righteousness who make ethical decisions, then we need to make sure that we are very close to God. We know what's right and wrong from God's Word, right? At least to some part. Our source of ethics is the Word of God. That's that's the key. That's a big one. We are people who desire to know what God has to say to us. We believe that God's word is true and that it's right. And we have, we understand we have this duty to uphold it. We know that stealing is wrong. Not because like our society got together and we all decided that collectively that that would be our law, but because God's law says it's wrong. But, but what about those areas of life that don't have a rule? What about those things that aren't listed in the Ten Commandments? There's nothing in like God's Word about what to do when a nation tricks you into signing a peace treaty with them and you're supposed to kill them. Like, there's nothing, there's no specific rule about that. But, but, in Numbers 30, it does talk about the very serious nature of making an oath and swearing something to God. Doing that is serious. It's binding. And breaking that vow is blasphemous. That is Ten Commandment level error. That is the wrong thing to do. And so Joshua reasons here based on what he does know about the law of God that breaking his vow would be wrong. Two wrongs aren't going to make this right. Even though the end result is all these people get wiped out and that's what we were supposed to do. No, that's not, ends don't justify the means. The foolish, rash, hasty vow that he made, it wasn't wise. He had to own that. But breaking the oath he made before God would be worse. And I feel like at this point, there's probably some things that I could say about like marriage vows and keeping that. That's a whole nother sermon. I'll get that another day. 
So in coming uh, to an ethical conclusion, we need to know what God's Word says. But we also need to know some godly principles, right? We need to know some godly principles from God's Word to apply to our situation. Because there isn't, again, there isn't a verse for every pickle that we get ourselves into. That's not how the Bible works. And Jesus himself essentially does this when someone comes up to him and says, what's the greatest commandment? Which one? What's, what's the most important one? Thinking like, oh, I got you now, because no matter what you say, it's going to be wrong. What, and what does Jesus do? Uh, say? He says, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, everything you've got. Love the Lord. That's number one. And then love your neighbor as yourself is number two. Essentially, what Jesus is doing is taking the Ten Commandments and boiling them down to their basic principles, right? The first four commandments are all about our relation to God. Uh, the last six commandments are all about our relation with other people. Love God with everything that you've got, and then love other people like you love yourself. That's the basic principle to live with. So we got to be able to understand the principles that come out of God's Word. And then finally, we got to know something about the character of God. What's God like? God is holy and God is just. God is righteous. But God is also gracious and He's merciful. He's patient. And I think Joshua understood the character of the nature of God, and that's what led him to show mercy on the Gibeonites. Here in Joshua 9, Joshua rightly assesses that that his people are angry and and that there's a, a potential for them to maybe overreact and to make a bad decision in that anger. But he knows that God will honor their patience and their grace and their faithfulness to the Gibeonites even though they lied to us. That's, that's just what God's like. That's who He is. He's faithful and gracious to us, even when we don't deserve it. The source of wisdom and ethics is found in God. And if we want to be people who are wise and righteous, we need to hold fast to it. God, I thank You, Lord, for these reminders that where there is wisdom that is not from us, the source of what's right and what's wrong that's ultimately found in You. And so I pray, dear God, that You would help us to hold fast to You. Lord, there will be times in our lives, probably today, when we're tempted to use a different system of ethics, to do what seems right to us or what feels good to us or what we think ultimately will have the best result. And God, instead, help us to be people who can hold fast to Your Word. Understanding that that our duty is to obey Your will. And not just because that's our duty, but because You are a good, loving God who knows what's right and what's best. Oh, thank You, Lord, for being a good, good Father, for giving us good things, for steering us in the right direction. We praise your God for all the ways you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.